Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 216 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Susanna Barkataki. Susanna is a yoga unity activist. She is a lover of the humanities, and she is the author of a new book called Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. Over the past few years, Susanna's writing on her blog and her Instagram account have garnered a lot of attention. She shared her thoughtful perspective on yoga and cultural appropriation. I like in the interview that she refers to herself as a rabble rouser because indeed she does share uh, things in a straightforward way and is trying to nudge us toward critical thinking and toward acknowledging the ways that yoga in the West has moved away from honoring yoga's roots. Her book is fantastic. I highly recommend it, and I will put a link to purchase it on the show notes page. I wish I had had more time with her. There's so much to talk about and unpack, but we did get to talk about her definition of cultural appropriation this tendency to either glamorize or sterilize the roots of yoga practice, the antidotes to cultural appropriation, and why this needs to be a continuing conversation and not just something that we feel like we have to get perfect. Otherwise, we shouldn't engage in it at all. It's a great conversation, and I I so appreciate her willingness to Uh, just to speak up and to be solutions oriented and to be open minded. So enjoy the interview with Susanna. All right, Susanna. Well, I'm just so happy that you're here today. Thank you for being here and talking with me and my listeners. I just know that we have so much to learn from you. I'm excited to be here. Thank (laughs) you for having me. And I I feel like the work that you've been doing for the past several years is really opening up a conversation in the the yoga community that might not otherwise be happening in quite the way that's happening. So I just, I commend you for that. It's a lot of work that you've been, a lot of work that you've been putting in. And I I just really appreciate the clarity clarity in your thinking and your messages. I wanted to, um, I always like to sort of start out with the personal. I think it's such a nice, Mm -hmm. nice inroad. So I want to just just start by asking you to describe what you do these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to think of myself as a yoga unity activist. And that means, you know, my goal in life is to bring out the ultimate aim of yoga as unity. And that happens in so many different ways, like writing, teaching, living and trying to embody all the different aspects of yoga. It's a very aspirational aim, you know, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. I achieve that all the time, but that's really how, how I think of myself and um, a little bit of, you know, like rabble rouser, a little bit of writer and a lot of educator in there. Um, but it, it looks different on different days and at different times. And prior to doing what you do now, were you, I, I think I read somewhere that you were a high school teacher. Were you also a professor? You know, <laughs> um, I majored in philosophy in at Berkeley, and I thought I was heading in the direction of becoming a philosophy professor. I did that because I thought it was the least BS of all subjects, right? Looking back, I'm like, wow, that was... It was an interesting choice and an interesting um, train of thought, but no, I'm, I'm not a professor. I, um, it's like 
an alternate reality that maybe one day I'll get to take. But yeah. I've been a high school teacher and an elementary school teacher and a, and a middle school teacher. I really oh, wow. taught U.S. culture through the lens of race, class, and gender in a public high school in Los Angeles for many years. And then also literature, um, world literature, and um, American literature and AP literature. So oh, wow. I love books. I love ideas. I love to study kind of like ethical considerations and why people do what they do and what are the best ways to live all those kinds of questions that yoga actually asks mm -hmm. and provides answers to you know and um and i i guess i would say like i'm a lover of the humanities in mm -hmm. yeah you have a, a very distinct ability to like I, it's so clear to me that you have like a very broad understanding of history <laughs> of world mm -hmm. history and then you have this ability to kind of link it together with what's what's happening sociologically now which is really like I, I so you've got a book coming out it's called honor yoga's roots and i just got to get an advanced copy i'm so appreciative of that and my mind is a little bit blown because there's just so much information mm -hmm. in there but before we get to that i just want to ask you one more kind of personal question which is you know you've talked about how you grew up with an indian father and a british mom and how because of your father, yoga was kind of like woven into the fabric of your, your upbringing and your life. So if, and if I'm getting that correct, I'm just wondering, like, when did you start to feel like, hmm, the yoga that I'm seeing around me right now is just not representing where it came from, or it's just not like, it's not like the full picture that I would love for people to see. Right. I think the sociological understanding that you're talking about talking about comes from, you know, is living as a mixed race person at the heart of kind of these social conditions of separation and of racism and of colonization. And yet when when you're living like out big like the effects of big things as an individual, it can be it sometimes can be hard to name those things in one's own life, right? And break it down. And so I remember talking to my family members, um, my family in the US are all Assamese, so from Assam and Northeast India and Bengali also from Northeast India. And I remember talking to them and then saying, you know, Beta, which is like child, I don't feel like I can go to a yoga studio. I don't feel like I, I belong in a mm -hmm. yoga class. And I was like, you know, aunties, uncles, like, that makes no sense. That's this is so this terrible. Is yeah. 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 So why, why do you feel that way? And so that was probably in high school or maybe early in college. But honestly, I still didn't fully connect the dots, you know, until after I came back from college, I had practiced a little bit of yoga asana in college. And then I came back and started to teach young people as as a new teacher when I was in my early 20s and only then because of connecting with other activists you know we wouldn't have even called ourselves activists at the time but mm -hmm. folks who were trying to understand and like unpack these big social issues one of them was Patrice Cullors uh, who folks may know or hopefully we'll learn about who's one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement and other other folks at the time we were trying to make sense of what didn't make sense you know like looking around at the world around us and saying why are young brilliant 
people being put in the school to prison pipeline just because of the color of their skin or the lack of resources that they have. Like, what is this? Let's undo these dynamics. Why are immigrants or you know people coming from you know South and Central America being treated poorly? You know, just because they're from a different place. Like we were asking those questions and trying to find answers, and it was in that context of. Mm -hmm like, let's figure this out, that I started to myself look at my own social conditions and the conditions of my family and my friends and say, wait, there's something not quite adding up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you give a really concise definition of cultural appropriation in your book. Mm. Um, and you, you, you know, make it clear your message is like, let's talk about appreciating, not appropriating, which I think is such a great perspective. I wonder if you could share your definition of cultural appropriation and then some examples that you, you know, that come up within the yoga community. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I'd be happy to do that. It's one of the most powerful things I think is putting names to these social these big social constructs right and so people sometimes hear cult, the word cultural appropriation they're like well what does that mean mm -hmm. it can't we just share you know can't we all like borrow and and borrow from each other's cultures and why is that a problem and so I, I like to say well cultural appropriation is actually different than um, just borrowing or just sharing it's based in a system of oppression always so there's always two criteria present and one is power a power differential and the second is harm and so by that power well actually let me give you a definition from from the oxford english dictionary first because i think what's powerful about this is you know even though i question the authorities or the source of where my knowledge is coming from even the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, points at power. It says um, cultural appropriation is the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant people or society. And so with that use of the word dominant, they're pointing at a power differential. So Meaning, for example, in colonial India, when the British had power, you know, and, and control, economic control, and then also political control, taking something from the oppressed culture would have been, and using it themselves, which happened all the time, is a concrete example of cultural appropriation. And so really the reason that cultural appropriation is so kind of like tensed for people or such an issue for people is it heightens the tension on the imbalance of power that exists. And so just to give a concrete example there, Sikh people, S-I-K-H, so folks who practice the Sikh faith from Punjab in Northwest India, wear turbans as a delineation of their faith. And actually it's this really powerful message of I'm going to wear a turban, I'm not going to take it off because I want to be a lighthouse and a beacon and show people that they can come to me for support, you know, in any circumstances, right? But as 
you may or may not know, folks listening, sick people are mis-stereotyped for Muslims in the United States. And you know, so it's like this double racist misunderstanding. One, like, of course, if someone's Muslim, it doesn't mean they're a terrorist. But two, sick people are targeted and killed in the U.S. as as part of the backlash to September 11th. And so when white or non-Indian person, non-sick person takes something like a turban and can kind of put it on and off or uses it to signify their spiritual faith, but then doesn't, you know, stand up for the Sikhs who are being targeted, that would be an example of cultural appropriation. Most strongly, I would say a, a very clear example with that is Gucci designed a hat that they call the indie turban. And they sold it for $2,000 and had a, oh a white model wearing this blue turban. And so there you've got power imbalance, harm to the source culture, because you know they're not standing up for the harm that's happening to the people that this came from and then also something that actually is a sign of modesty of like spiritual intention of not taking more than one needs becomes this like two thousand dollar you know fashion garment and so on large and small scale when we take something from another culture especially if we're in a position of power we really do need to look at what are the issues of harm um, or disrespect that might be at play? I thought it was so interesting how you were able to um, categorize two very common types that you see, which are like the glamorization or the sterilization. That was so helpful to me because for those of us who feel like, okay, we don't want to appropriate, but like, how do we do it? What do we do? The, we might mm -hmm. we might kind of gravitate toward the sterilization, right? Like, I shouldn't be speaking the language. I shouldn't be like you know. So anyway, let, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Sort of examples of that, and then kind of how we can we can do better. And I just want to say to people, right? It's like this stuff is tricky, mm -hmm. and as an Indian person, you know, mixed whatever. It's like whatever I say is not gospel truth, right? Like you could ask another Indian and they yeah. would have a different perspective. And so what my goal is really with these types of issues um, and honestly with everything is to get us to think critically. So we're not saying, oh, there's this rule book and Sudan mm -hmm. says, do these things and don't do these things, right? And But no, it's not like that. It's more like, let's think part of commitment to a deep and full rich yoga practice is a commitment to a life of ideas so we're we're applying our practice to a social context and to social issues so i like to just say that because i think i think it's important that as we're seeing how to do it kind of the right way that we don't just stop with like i just don't want to mess up or i, I you know that's a great motivation but it's just kind of the beginning of understanding how to engage deeply and fully with a rich tradition from the inside out. Yeah. And absolutely. so I would say that, you know, it's like, how can we be aware of appreciating, not appropriating? And, and one of those ways is, is just being mindful. Like glamorization is when you just kind of put someone or something from a particular culture up on a pedestal. Like, oh, you're so amazing. That's so exotic. It's so beautiful. I'm going to, 
wear a bindi and wear the clothes and just kind of make a make myself feel really special and really different but without understanding from the inside mm-hmm. what the practice is and, and what it's about and and all of the you know asha frost who's an indigenous uh, writer and, and teacher says you can't something like i'm paraphrasing but it's like you can't have all the beauty without also of my culture without also understanding the pain right like you if you're going to take from the richness please also kind of stand alongside me in the struggles and fight for justice and for for equality and equity so a concrete example of glamorization might be putting you know a ton of statues like Ganesh, Lakshmi, Vishnu all over a yoga studio or space or even you know on a digital digital space but at the same time not understanding that what how people relate or that for some people you know within Indian culture some Hindus some some folks from different you know Jains folks from different traditions that the deities are not just placeholders they're actually like family members right they're like um, beings that people love and connect to and really revere and want to respect. And so you would never put, for example, a deity on the floor because it would be seen as disrespectful or point your feet to a deity. So if we're practicing yoga asana and there's a Shiva uh, statue in the front of the room, then if we're doing a forward fold, you know, Paschimottanasana, it would be, it would be disrespectful to, mm-hmm. to do it in that direction. And so there are some ways that glamorization overlooks the cultural context. And again, for folks who are thinking, but Susanna, why does that matter? Like, why should I care? I'm in the US or I'm in the UK or wherever you are. Why why does it matter? And I would say, you know, again, it's back to those issues of power imbalance and social inequity. And then ultimately like practicing the foundational tenets of yoga, ahimsa, you know, and, and non-harm and cultural care, right? So, and then the second side, just to finish answering, I know it's kind of a long explanation, but there's a little bit nuance. <laughs> I, th- I right? think it'll be very helpful to people. I really do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the second side of, of cultural appropriation sometimes can be glamorization, and then it also can be sterilization. And sterilization is like completely pulling out the cultural context, taking out all remnants of or, you know, ties to a particular cultural lineage, taking out the Sanskrit names, making it just like, like, for example, a recent experience of this that happened that people were so upset about is the Scientific American essentially renamed anulom viloma or alternate nostril breathing, cardiac coherence breathing, and had no reference to you know the Vedic, like it's actually yeah. described in the Vedas, right? So, so I think people wouldn't have been upset if they said, "We're we this is a practice, cardiac coherence breathing, which is so useful for the, these things, and because it's been found to be beneficial for folks with heart problems or to lower blood pressure." And they said, "Well, this is a practice that comes from ancient India, and for in our medical context, we're describing it as cardiac coherence breathing. I think then it would have been fine, but they sure. just didn't mention it. They erased the roots of the practice. And yeah. so people, you know, all the way up from like, from Indian government to folks like me, you know, we're, we're really 
frustrated and upset because that would be sterilizing, taking out all the cultural elements. And so I understand for people that's like, well, what do I do? You know, how do I not glamorize or sterilize? What what sort of a happy medium? So I think people are left question a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you do, like you said, this is not, I mean, I didn't ask that question to give people like a simple answer all tied up in a bow. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) clearly that that's just not how these kinds of discussions work. I often think about how the alternative to appropriation is creativity, right? Mm. It's like being creative, going into our own heritages, our own roots, our own practices and, and getting creative rather than just like relying on or taking from another culture. And then also like the creativity of really connecting with when we do connect with other cultures from the inside out. And so, so I'd like to say there's two antidotes to cultural appropriation for cultural appreciation. And that is, you know, since it's, it's literally flipping the two criteria of appropriation, which are power imbalance and then harm. And so power balancing, sharing power or using our privilege or advantage to uplift or support an under-resourced group or people or context, and then practicing non-harm, practicing ahimsa. So it's like, again, literally in the practice of yoga itself are the tools for liberation. And so yoga to me and, and for my main teachers, it really is a practice of, you know, now we use the word social justice or equity or social transformation. It's a practice of personal and social transformation. And so we can look at, well, where do I have privilege? Where do I have power? And how can I use that power to, to lift other folks up? And then where might there be harm? You know, it's not a perfect world, right? Like even if we're vegetarian, we may still cause harm by the, by the harm that comes to, by like little bugs, you know, that get killed in the process of making the, the vegetables that I eat or the lentils or grains. And so these practices including around appropriation and power are not, we don't have to be perfect, but we do need to try, I think. And for folks listening, it's like, you can't expect yourself to go from wherever you are to like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this perfectly, but how can you maybe balance power a little more, share a little bit more and practice reducing or, or mitigating harm? Like, and that can literally mean financially, socially, politically, culturally. And I'll give a concrete example using myself. So I live in the United States. I'm, I'm an immigrant here from England. And so I benefit as, and I'm identified as a person of color, right? So there's, there's parts of my identity where I have power and parts where I have uh, disprivilege. And so some of the ways where I have power is I'm not a black person and I'm not indigenous to the United States. And so I benefit from the suffering of black folks, folks who were enslaved and the labor, you know, the uncompensated labor of black folks and also indigenous folks and the land that was taken and, and all of the, the inequities there. And so when I do any, any kind of workshop, yoga workshop or, um, really anything at all, I take some percentage. First of all, I acknowledge that. And then second of all, I take a percentage of of what I make from that workshop and I give it to 
Black and Indigenous organizations. And I also, because I'm working in a yoga context in the West, give a percentage of it back to Indian yoga or just like in initiatives in India for social uplift. And so that's part of my way of trying to address the power imbalance, my own privilege as a mixed person, as a lighter skinned person, as someone living in the West, and adjust somewhat for the harm that has been caused, even though much of that harm may not have been mine explicitly, right? So that's a, a concrete example of a, a one way to practice appreciation. Yeah, I love I love that. I mean, I just think that's really thoughtful and a, a great thread for thinking about. I mean, I think so often there's this feeling of like there needs to be massive systemic change, which of course we all want, and of course we all need to participate in making that happen. But I like that this is just like I can still do my part by contributing. I can still, in my own little world, you know, think about why I am where I am right now and, and, and donate. You do talk about reparations in the book. And I think this is, these are just all great things to, to think about. Um, right. And, and I think for folks who aren't Indian, right, it's just, it's so simple. You don't have to do a whole, a whole thing, but like naming where the practice comes from, doing a kind of spiritual lineage acknowledgement, acknowledging that. And then, considering like, how can I uplift? How can I bring this to more people? And, and the people who, who this came from, how can I, you know, listen to their voices or share their voices? Those, those kinds of things, which really is also part of the ethics of yoga as well with Asteya and, you know, uplifting, uplifting diverse perspectives. I also think it's nice um, that you mentioned creativity as part of the antidote, because I think it can be we can get stuck in like, okay, well, how do I, I'm going to make a list of all the things I need to do. And it's like, you can get almost um, disconnected from, from, <laughs> from like the heart of it and into like checking off the boxes to make sure everything, you know, looks right. And like the virtue sig signaling aspect of things, when you think about creativity, it, it's sort of, you're getting away from that, ticking the boxes and, and just making everything look just so. Yeah, it's, it's really true. And I think, you know, circling back to what you brought up around namaste, it's like, again, there, I'm not saying what to do, right? Actually, I'm not saying do or don't say it, but think about the context, like, where, where is it coming from for you? What does it actually mean? And I can share my experience of it, you know, if that's helpful, but what is our intention or one's intention for saying the mistake at the beginning or at the end of a class? And does it reflect what you really mean to impart? You know, so it's really just a process of, of being mindful and, and bringing more intentionality. I know from our students that people listening would love to hear your experience with namaste if you'd yeah. like to share it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got a really beautiful meaning. It's namas is, or nama is reverence and adoration, salutation. And then the te is short for tupiam, which is like the second person to you. And so it really means like 
bow to you. There's no I, there's actually no, there's no pronoun I in namaste. It's just bowing. And so, and it's pronounced namaste. So it's the emphasis is on the second syllable, not the last, as we often hear. And, you know, and there's regional variations, of course. India is a rich and huge country and um, South Asia is even larger and there are many different ways that people pronounce it, but in general, the emphasis is on the second syllable. And usually we say namaste or namaskar when we meet or greet an elder, a respected teacher, not when we leave. It's like a formal greeting, you know? So um, I might say like, you know, namaste Shankarji when I meet my teacher and when I see him for the first time, after not seeing him for a while, or if, if he's doing a formal lesson, I, I would probably greet him that way. But we wouldn't part and say namaste to one another. It just, it's not a parting, it's a greeting. And so it feels strange to say at the end of a class, for me personally, and, and also for a lot of my colleagues and friends and family who are Indian, who are South Asian, who are Desi, they feel the same way. Now, Certainly there are exceptions. There are people, and I've heard a few people wrote to me who are from Nepal who say, we say namaste at the end of our, uh, when, we, when we're saying goodbye. And so, you know, there are, again, regional variations. But the thing that makes me think is like, well, why do we say it at the end of class? And because I also used to say it at the end of a class as, as a yoga teacher who was practicing, you know, in Los Angeles at the time. And I did it because everyone else did it. And I honestly also did it because it was an easy way to get people to understand like class is over, right? And, and then maybe even a little bit because there's this way that it's telegraphing or imparting. I'm some wise, you know, yoga teacher who is imparting wisdom to you and, and now we're finished, right? And that, when I really looked at it, I thought, I feel like I'm misusing this really beautiful experience that this, this experience of reverence in a way that's just performative or that's just functional. And so if I feel inspired with that same energy, I now will say namaste at the beginning of a class. And I tend to end by, by saying om shanti, 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 om peace, peace, peace at the end of class, which is how my teacher Shankarji and many other teachers that I've practiced with in India do end. They, they usually end with, with that. They begin and end sometimes with the Shanti mantra. And so, you know, it's really just for us to, to think about, like, what are my intentions? Why am I saying namaste? Do, does that, that intention match the impact as well for the students? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is such an interesting, it's a, it is an interesting one. I mean, I, I, I had a, a teacher named Arundhati Mangalkar on recently, and she said something very similar to you. She just said it just didn't, moving to Seattle from India, it didn't like resonate with her. It didn't actually make sense. Yeah. So, and, and so it's just, it's just good to hear lots of different perspectives. I mean, obviously there are Indian teachers who taught our white teachers who taught us so so it's like you said there's no monolith in any any culture there's no like one sole answer to it to you know giant continent but 
but it's just, it's so, so helpful to hear people unpack their experiences and the explanations. One of the parts of the book that I really appreciated that I thought you did so well um, in sort of unpacking is, I, I'm not sure if you use the word spiritual bypassing, but that's kind of what came to mind for me when people might say things like this kind of conversation is just dividing us and everyone's the mm-hmm. same. And, you know, I don't see color. Everyone is equal. And I just thought you did, you just did such a nice explanation of the underlying beliefs of that kind of thinking, right? Like that thinking comes from a place of, of, okay, yoga is unifying. It means union. And that's true, but it doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't acknowledge that we all come and in, come to, into the world with different levels of, of privilege. So I was wondering if you could sort of talk us through, you know, what, th- what that feels like for you when you hear that or what you think when you hear that and how you can kind of help people understand that's a form of bypassing. Right. Yeah. And what's so powerful about this question is like, there's never been a time in my life, you know, I was born in England to an Indian and a British, Indian and British parents. And my whole life was filled with separation, actually. It was like my mom's parents who are white said, you know, oh, you'll have to adopt to to my parents. Like you can't have children. They'll be half breeds, you know, and then my dad's parents would have wanted him to come home and get an arranged marriage to an Indian woman. Then we experienced a lot of violence in England, which was why we had to move to the U.S. to escape that violence against mixed race and Pakistani and and Indian families. And so even from very young, you know, before I was born and and as I was born, I came into this world that that didn't want me to be, right, Mm -hmm. as I am. And and I, of course, like fought that as, as many of us would do, but I also internalized those messages of you're not enough or you're not right, you know, you're not, you don't belong. And, and then that continued in the United States. And, and so it was, it's really confusing, I think, for people who haven't grown up with that level of like, I mean, I don't think there's a better way of saying it than like an assault on one's life, you know, and and right to live. Like if someone hasn't grown up with that, it's really hard to imagine what that's like, you know? And so of course it's like, well, we're all one and we all want to be equal and, um, you know, but I don't see your color. And that feels like, it feels loving and it feels kind. and, And yet it's completely bypassing the suffering that I or other folks of color, you know, I can just speak from my experience, but the suffering that I or other people of color have experienced, or anyone who is from a targeted group, right, for those who are women or identify as women, um, we may have experienced oppression or been targeted based on our gender. And there may be ways that that that's really hard to explain, like when it's the fifth or 10th sexist comment that one hears throughout a workday. And by that 10th comment, they're like, oh, I'm just joking, right? But it's like, yeah, you're just joking, but it's the 10th time I've heard mm-hmm. a comment about what I look like. So for you, it's just a joke. But for me, it's it's like systemic sexism now, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so there's a way that that, oh, we're all one, you know, bypasses that kind of harm and that kind of pain that isn't just individual, it's systemic. And so sometimes when I hear that, I mean, just the real honest answer 
Because I just feel like tired, like, oh, I don't know how to get from where I am and what I've experienced to where you are and like how to do that bridge mm-hmm. of, of understanding without myself opening up to a lot of potential pain, right? Because truthfully, the way that people often, what I found in the years of doing this kind of education and teaching is the only way I've been able to get people to shift, really understand is to like go into the roots of my own suffering and share of those very vulnerably. And then someone's like, oh, I had no idea, you know, and and there's a, like an aha, Mm -hmm. but that's a lot of labor, you Mm -hmm. know, for me to do or, or for someone who's targeted to do. And so, and so I do choose to do it right as a, as an educator on these things. And, and yet I think, I think more and more now we're at this time where there's so much education around these things that there is a movement to say, well, for folks who don't understand or for folks who are like asking, you know, can't we just all like get along? Can't we not see color to say, well, go here and read this or like go get, get that kind of education from folks who share your privilege and then come and engage, you know? So, so I think it's a matter of, trying to self-educate a little bit and for folks with privilege, right? Like to do that work a little bit for, for the folks who are marginalized. So again, for example, as a South Asian person, I'm non-Black, one of my jobs I see as using my privilege is to talk about anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. And so because it shouldn't be Black people's job to teach other Indians and South Asians how not to be anti-black. It should mm-hmm. be our own work, right? So so I really am one of those people who believes very much in kind of caucus work and, and for white folks or folks with racial privilege to to speak to one another and say, hey, I think, you know, I think you might want to look at that or check out this this article on spiritual bypassing or, you know, we can kind of help bring each other up with that education. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually, that's, that's inspiring. Cause I do, I mean, I hear this kind of like, it reminds me of just like glitter and rainbows, you know, when, 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 when people in, in the yoga community kind of go to that and it's, and it's not just in, in the case of cultural appropriation, it happens all the time in all different instances. And to me, it's just kind of a, it's a profound misunderstanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about union. And it's also just like a way to bypass discomfort, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. that makes me uncomfortable to think that you are having difficulty. That makes me uncomfortable to think that I might be the reason for someone else having difficulty. So therefore I'm going to try to convince you that the difficulty Mm -hmm. isn't there, (laughs) you know? And it just, yeah, I mean, ultimately it's not helpful. It's like people want to feel empathized with and acknowledge they don't want to feel denied and disconnected from. So. Right. And our practice really provides us with the ability to hold tension. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about, you know, many of us probably practice yoga asana in a way where we sink into or we breathe into or through physical tension and maybe even discomfort, obviously not pain, but Um, or hopefully not pain, but where we're holding that tension. And sometimes we have to hold it internally and emotionally and 
that's also what creates a new way, right? It's like if I'm, I'm experiencing pain based on discrimination and someone else is like, can't we all be one, right? If we can both just sit in that tension for a moment and hold it and, and even let it lengthen, it's like a new way is born. Um, I'm imagining a triangle. So I know we're on a podcast, so folks can't see. I talk a lot with my hands, but I have like a little triangle with like two points and then that third way up above. And truly, I think that is the process of getting to unity is holding the tension of, well, this isn't right and it isn't okay. And like, wow, like you, I really wish we could be at a place where, you know, you and I experience the same thing, regardless of our gender or race or our culture, you know, all these things that that don't need to divide us, but sometimes do. And when we can sit in that, we get to actually get closer to unity, but not through just jumping over it, but by um, acknowledging it, like really seeing the problems to, to transform them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I want to just end, if it's okay, by reading this one section of the book that I think just says so much. And we didn't get to talk too much about colonialism in our little time together, but it, you do talk about it in the book and, you know, you have lots of resources in the book and I, for one, will be exploring more because I do feel like I had Andrea Jane on the podcast not too long ago and she, it was her recommendation too, like acquaint yourself with the colonial, you know, the history of colonialism in, in India. And I realized like most of the yoga books or, I mean, if, I mean, most, if not maybe her book talks about it, but most of the mm. yoga books that I've read do not talk about the, about colonialism and the, and the residual effects. Um, mm. So there's a lot more that we, we need to learn about there. Yeah. yeah. But I'm going to just read this, this, this last part to everyone and you can add on to it if you'd like to. You say, how can Western teachers and students of yoga move forward honoring their own journey as well as yoga's roots? How can we begin to practice yoga as union today? A first step is working to deepen our understanding and practice of yoga, taking its colonial history into consideration. I share this exploration with the spirit of love and appreciation for you, wherever you are. You are a part of me. I am part of you. We all have ancestors. We all have history and culture, and we all matter. I don't want you to stop teaching or practicing yoga. I want you to understand and know its context is relevant for us today. Mm-hmm. To me, that is just like such a beautiful summary of your your book actually i mean you obviously there's so much to it but um that's just such a nice like nice little snippet there mm. yeah thank you it's so great it's so funny to hear my own words like back in, in context <laughs> it's great but it's true it's like when we understand these bigger social things it's like kind of what we started talking about right like the these social themes and how they've impacted us and yoga comes to us through a colonial lens and Mm. that colonial lens often reduces yoga well actually the colonial lens reduces the colonial subjects to oversimplified beings that can be subjugated and it's the same thing that happened with yoga what came to us as just a physical practice primarily, you know, and and for many yoga teachers, right? And some of you may be different, some folks listening, but many of us probably first encountered yoga as a physical, as just asana. But that's the same kind of simplification 
that happens where where the British say, well, Indians aren't able to or hold space for a complex thought. They don't have an ethical framework. Um, they, they don't have a system of, you know, what a good life is. And all of those things are literally what yoga is. It's an ethical system, a moral philosophy for how to be in the world. And so that reduction of yoga to just asana is part of the problem in not in that asana is a problem. Asana is wonderful, right? And it's, a, it's one of the limbs and one of the ways to practice and can be a, a entry point for and a continuous, a continuation point for so many of us. But expanding in to look at the complexity of the moral philosophy of yoga and how it answers questions around suffering or ways to live in the world that can allow us to experience personally deeper transformation as well as how to engage with one another. And so when I bring up colonization and looking at colonization, it's all of that. It's kind of like literally by doing this work, even by having the conversation that we're having now, we're actually doing the work of um, of engaging with the full expanse of what yoga is, which to me is is my wish for what all of us continue to do and, and hopefully will preserve this this tradition for future generations in a more expanded way. Mm. Yes, that is my wish too. So thank you. Thanks for the work that you are, have done and continue to do. And thank you so much for being here and being on Yoga Land. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here and appreciate you and, and Jason and all the work that you do and look forward to talking more soon. Yes, likewise. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you will share this interview far and wide. I think it's just the beginning of a conversation like this, and I am just honored to be a part of it. As I mentioned, I will put a link to Susanna's book on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 216. I appreciate you all so, so, so much for listening and following along on our journey here. And I hope you are having a great week. I hope you have a great holiday season wherever you are. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.